Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Ben Heminger. Ben is the co-founder and CEO of Fashion File, a leading luxury re-commerce company. Ben, thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Darren. Great. So just a level set for people. I don't think many people I hadn't heard of re-commerce. What is re-commerce? Yeah, it's e-commerce, of course, but with uh, secondary goods. So secondary market that's all on, all online. So could be any product, musical instruments, clothing, cars, watches, anything that's bought and sold in, this, in the secondary market. So it's you know from a customer sells it to us, and then we sell it back. You know on our platform on fashionfile.com. That's re-commerce. Interesting. So can you dig into that a little bit more? I think it's, it's just it's a really fascinating business model. I think people might be interested in, in how what they can learn from it, how they can apply it to their companies as well. Yeah, I mean, re-commerce is kind of a new, newly coined word. You know, you had consignment shops, you had used car dealerships and things like that in the past. It didn't really have its own name as a part of the broader economy. But since um, in the last five years or so, there's been you know companies like Reverb. It does musical instruments, and they've you know become a billion dollar company on just musical instruments buying and selling and trading. And there's you know watch companies that are getting into it. There's the Real Real, uh, which is now publicly traded company that is basically an online consignment store where you sell clothing and accessories and, and furniture and art all on this platform. So because these companies have gotten big and gotten noticed that they've made a name for it. And there's a real appetite for it in the market. And I think it's a lot of combination maybe that the next generation of shoppers is a little bit more, uh, there's eco factor. You know, when you buy something from the secondary market, it didn't get created a second time. So no resources were, additional resources were used. So that's an appeal. And also just the internet, I think, has brought that marketplace to life. I mean, eBay really started e-commerce in a big way online because that's the first marketplace where you could really buy something that someone else already owned. So I think the internet's brought that about that people can actually find a lot more of those items out there than they could have before when it was just, you know, mom and pop consignment stores. I mean, that's a really hard way to shop. If you have to go from shop to shop, you know, that didn't work. But once you put it all online, you can actually create a marketplace that works for buyers and sellers. Interesting. What a fascinating use of internet technology. Yeah, it really is. I mean, Craigslist, eBay, that was like the pioneers. And then I think from those sources, people split off and said, well, you know, I can't just sell luxury handbags on Craigslist or eBay because there's an authenticity thing. There's kind of a luxury appeal. So you'd have companies that split off from those platforms to create niche re-commerce. And that's how we started. We were originally an eBay seller split off and became our own e-commerce platform. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you because I always think a, an origin story is so interesting because people just think about, they look at fashion and file, look at other companies and think, oh, it was, just, it was an easy start. But can you talk a little bit about that in terms of how the business got started and how you got involved with it? Yeah, it's been a while. You know, Fashion officially began as a business in 2006. So we've been around for a long time. And, and prior to 2006, my partner, my business partner, Sarah, and I had each had our own independent kind of side hustles, you'd say today, in re-commerce. I was doing, basically, I started off when we lived in Hawaii. My wife went to school in Hawaii just for one year. And we were on, you know, kind of a less populated side of the island, looking for a job. There's nothing really, there's no jobs out there, especially just for one year. And so what I had, what I did was take a little bit of my experience selling stuff on eBay as a hobby. And I tried to find something that was available in Hawaii that you could sell on eBay, where people from the mainland may not have, have as much access to it. So I thought, well, maybe Hawaiian shirts, like there's, they can be pretty expensive, collectible shirts and things like that. So I went to consignment stores, thrift stores, things like that in Honolulu, looking specifically at first for just Hawaiian shirts that I could sell on eBay for more. And really, it was learning which brands had the best resale value. Like there was Rain Spooner, Tommy Bahama, Cook Street. <laughs> There's a couple of different brands. I would just buy them for like literally $5, $1, maybe $10 for the nice ones, come back and sell them for $20 to $50. And so that's really was a fun way to, you know, kind of make money when I was in Hawaii. And it, that evolved into other things at those stores that had value, Birkenstocks or women's clothing labels like you know that had that had good resale value so that's kind of how i got a little you know momentum in the in the re-commerce myself all the while sarah from texas where she was living was doing kind of the same thing and she kind of honed in on a niche that was a little bit more upper end like the handbags and she started uh, kind of narrowing in on louis vuitton as a thing. So you go to a consignment store, look for a Louis Vuitton. They may only have one or two, buy it, and then go to eBay and then kind of do a better job presenting it, sell it on eBay. So in 2006, we kind of came together and said, hey, we've both got this interest and the experience, but her product of Louis Vuitton was just a higher ticket item than mine. So we're like, let's join together and focus on this Louis thing. And we started selling Louis Vuitton only on eBay in 2006. And then that grew to, uh, well, why don't we do Chanel? Why don't we do? And so we, from that it grew. And now we're, you know, that's 2006. We, you know, we started off just her and I and our spouses kind of doing it. And, you know, now we've grown it to where we are today and where, you know, we have 200 or actually 325 employees across the country, you know, and we're partnered with Neiman Marcus and we've, you know, we're looking at, over $300 million in gross revenue for 2021. So it's kind of how it's how it started and, and where it's grown. And that whole re-commerce market came up around us. I mean, we were just doing our thing, hawking bags at the beginning, not thinking, oh, we're part of re-commerce or this is how it's going to go. Or we had no idea. We were just kind of taking one bag at a time. And since the time we started it, the awareness of re-commerce and sustainable fashion, things like that have come up around us. And we've been able to ride the wave of growth 
which is just really good timing, I guess, on our part to have had worked out all our kinks before it was really even popular in most of the customers' eyes. Yeah, imagine though, when people look at your website, they think about ultra luxury, they think about you parading around the streets of the Champs d'Elysees in Paris and Milan and, and London and other things. But I remember you talking about just hopping from consignment store to consignment store, I think in San Francisco, if I recall. Yeah, I mean, we started off in Hawaii and there's like a couple of thrift stores called Value Village there or Savers. It's a chain. That was like, you know, that was the spot. And so once we moved back from the mainland and we're living in the Bay Area, we're like, hey, that worked, you know. The Hawaiian shirts, you know, had a little value, but it was really the other stuff that had, had the most value. So we kept on doing that, my wife and I. And we were on Saturdays drive to all the different consignment shops and thrift stores that we kind of vetted out, like the good ones. There's one, a good one in Palo Alto. There's a good one in Menlo Park. There's one in Los Altos. And we had to hit the one in Danville. I mean, we were all around the Bay Area every Saturday, just collecting this stuff. And then during the week, outside of our regular jobs, we would post the stuff on eBay and, and sell it. But that's, yeah, the, the non-glamorous beginnings to the business for sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting is people just, they see the the glam of the website, the finished product. If you will, obviously, business is never a finished product, but people gloss over those hard times when people are packing their own boxes, they're sweeping the floors. I think it's important to go back to those days. Yeah, we did that for many years, even before you know, 2006 official start of Fashion Files. It was just, you know, yeah, going to the post office, you know, with boxes of stuff that you packed and dealing with the customer service and the returns and you know, it's definitely, uh, it was a lot of work. Even after we started Fashion Pal, it was several years we were doing all those jobs. You know, you're taking the pictures and measuring the item and answering the emails and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't know if you've always been an ultra luxury or handbag guy, but how did you go about just learning and getting immersed in the ultra luxury business? Yeah, that's ultra luxury. We define, by the way, just for anyone who may not understand, luxury can be broadly defined as fashion that's, nice i guess but ultra luxury would be like those kind of worldwide iconic brands gucci louis vuitton chanel you know and in the car in the you know jewelry world be cartier or van cleef and you know rolex for watches like that's the that's what we mean by the ultra luxury and we had all from the beginning we stayed ultra luxury and not to offend anyone who might have these bags because they're certainly fine but we don't do that, you know, brands like Coach, Kate Spade, Michael Kors, those are fine American brands, but they don't have that lifetime value that stays with them year after year. So that's kind of where we made the decision to say, we're not going to do, even though there's money to be made in things that are quote unquote, not ultra luxury, but just luxury. We decided to stay ultra luxury. And that's kind of a branding strategy. We felt like from the beginning, if we wanted to overcome what was what was we felt like a stigma of selling used items, you know, so you know, if you're buying something used, there's historically and still to this day a little bit, a little bit of a you know weird feeling like oh sorry used, not sure if I feel comfortable you know wearing something someone else had. So we stuck to handbags and accessories because a little less personal than clothing, you know, as far as buying someone else's stuff. And then we stuck to those ultra luxury brands to really shed ourselves from any feeling that it was like a thrift store or a, you know, we wanted to be an alternative for a shopper who was accustomed to going to a Louis Vuitton boutique or a Chanel boutique or an even Marcus store, they would feel just as comfortable shopping the merchandise that we had. And we didn't mix it up with a lot of other things that maybe they didn't want. So we always try to keep it very high end. 
strategically. And I think that's you know, proven to be a, a good decision for us in the long run. It reminds me of living in Brazil. There's a term called semi-novo, which basically it's like semi-new. So it seems like that's in a lot of ways describes your products. Yeah, I mean, pre-loved, pre you know, <laughs> people use different uh, euphemisms for, you know, used. Pre-owned, it's probably the best. We kind of like to characterize ourselves, or at least in your in the customer's mind, as something akin to like a certified pre-owned Mercedes or Lexus. Like perfectly acceptable, every luxury car make has a certified pre-owned option. And that doesn't seem to be weird for people to sit in someone else's seat that someone else sat in for two years driving that car. But we as consumers are totally fine buying a two-year-old car and consider that a viable option. So that's kind of where we like to get in the customer's mind. It's like it's certified pre-owned Chanel, Louis Vuitton. I mean, they still, they sell for, you know, there's still a lot of value, even if you've, if it's been carried for off and on for a year or two or three, that's perfectly acceptable. And we've seen that the customers opened up to that more and more over the years. It was more of a struggle for us to overcome that kind of, I don't feel very luxury carrying a pre-owned item. That was what we ran into in the early days. And now it's definitely gotten a lot better and people are much more open to it. It just seems like business in general, just different mindsets in terms of how we think about our own properties and our own assets, whether it's a car and, and using it for Uber, or whether it's a house and Airbnb being our properties or living in someone else's properties. So really similar in terms of the progression of those mindsets. That's true. Yeah, the beginning of Airbnb and, and, and stuff, people thought that'd be crazy to stay in someone else's house. Now it's, um, to me, it seems more appealing than a hotel because it's even more traffic than someone's house. Yeah, that's exactly right. And a great way to monetize your existing assets, looking for extra cash flow. Same thing with bags. You know, you want to sell your old bag, get a new one, or just anyway, just different way of looking at things. Yeah, I'm not just that whole mindset of this of the circular economy in e-commerce. Like we're of course, let's say the the bag is first sold from let's say a Neiman Marcus boutique. You can buy a Chanel there, buy it for four thousand dollars, and believe it or not, that is a price that you pay for a good Chanel. So you buy it for four thousand carry it for a year, you know, a little bit, then you bring it back to us. That's kind of completing the circle. We pay maybe 2,500 for that bag. So you really only paid $1,500 for the use of that bag for a year. We turn around and sell it for 2,200 or so, or 3,200. And so someone else buys that and then they can sell it back to us, you know, again. So that's the circular economy but yeah it gives value to the customer because now they have a closet that's worth something and before re-commerce or fashion file was out there buying bags your closet was your closet it's kind of a, a loss and so now your closet is really worth a lot more and what we've found is that actually puts more money into the primary market so if you have a closet now you realize I just got to take this thing down into a, a fashion file location or somewhere else and I can get $2,000 out of this. Well, that just makes your next bag $2,000 cheaper. It allows you to buy more stuff. And so we've found that the more people sell of those items, the more they actually buy new. And so kind of everyone wins. You know, the brands, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, et cetera, Hermes, they could potentially sell a lot more because of the fact that re-commerce is out there putting money in people's hands who already love their product. Interesting. I was actually going to 
ask you about the brands and how they received it, I can imagine maybe they wouldn't be as excited about a secondary marketplace, at least in the early days. That's true. And still somewhat true. They're very close to it. The biggest brands, I mean, we're talking the you know most iconic brands, would, um, you know, they would ignore it at first, assuming it's just not a threat. And then I think, you know, as the years went on, you know, maybe five, six, seven years ago, we started to see the brands not ignoring it, but getting a little litigious, kind of trying to sue everyone they could just to slow it down a little bit or to scare anyone off. And now I think that's evolved a little bit and they have started to see that there's either it's not going away and they can't just waste money suing everybody and losing, but now they're um, starting to try to figure out how to participate, how to either invest in it. And some brands have started investing in re-commerce or possibly, you know, starting up their own, you know, buyback program where they can participate in, in the circular economy themselves, which is what Neiman Marcus did with Fashion File. So two years ago, Neiman invested in Fashion File. They put a minority investment into our company. And part of that is that we would locate our Fashion File buying offices inside a Neiman Marcus store just to fully to, to take advantage of that circular economy. That, so they can do that in one shop. You could bring in your bag, get $2,000 for it off of your next bag, and you walk out. So you walk in with last year's Chanel. You walk out with this year's Chanel and you paid, you know, a lot less than, you know, the guy next to you who just walked in and bought the Chanel. So Neiman kind of saw the vision on that and that's turned out really well. And we're all those locations that we're in are, are, are doing very well. And we're opening up 10 more in the next, you know, next year. So it's becoming more integrated with the, with the primary market than ever before. So it's actually really interesting what you said, because it's almost like a purchase incentive. If people are aware when they... I'm thinking about the brand entry point. The first time you buy a Chanel bag or a Louis Vuitton bag, if you know you have this way of actually selling it to a e-commerce or whatnot, that almost would be an incentive for these brands, in this case, Neiman Marcus, to actually sell more bags. Yeah, I think that's how they see it. It's not only that. That's totally... That is the vision. That it incentivizes people to get into the game of buying these expensive bags, knowing that most people who start buying and start carrying these brands, they don't want to stop. I mean, it's a higher quality. It's just feels good to own the best. And once people are in that system, they rarely leave it, but you got to get people into it to begin with. And it does lower the bar a little bit for that first, takes away the risk. Like if you buy a $2,000 bag and you're not happy with it, or if you change your mind, you have an option. You can, you know, you'll get most of your money back for it. So that is exactly that's exactly how why they would be involved in that. It's interesting how the markets evolved, how just the mindset and just openness to this new kind of business model has changed over time. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it changed a lot in the customer's mind, in the brand's mind. A lot of awareness has been has been made. We have competitors, uh, the real real I mentioned and others, Poshmark is a marketplace that's similar to ours. And they have done a lot of advertising, a lot of awareness building. And it's really helped to rise the tide for everyone in e-commerce. You know, we haven't done a lot of awareness marketing, but we've definitely benefited from the awareness marketing that others have done to get people into this idea of like, hey, my closet is worth something. I have options. Now that they're aware of that, you know, that helps, you know, all of us. 
Yeah, one thing I think is really interesting, and I think that people, something you talked about up front, but what you've basically done is created a two-sided marketplace where you have people who are selling their products to you guys and you have an entirely separate market that's actually coming to your website from an e-com perspective and actually buying those products. That's a pretty unique challenge because I think many companies are just really focused on building one. And even if I think about you guys in the early days in terms of buying product, you're essentially sourcing the product by yourself and then it's finding the buyers on eBay. How have you gone about building those two different markets and what challenges did you face? It is like almost like twice the work than a traditional business that might buy something from a whole or they manufacture it themselves or they buy a wholesale lot. What's crazy is that every bag that we sell, every item that we sell has been negotiated like to buy that item from someone else. So our supplier network is, you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals and our buyers deal with them one by one. You can't create a, you know, a design and a, and a skew and then multiply it by a thousand. You have to go and get each and every one of them. So it is more labor intensive. So the way we've kind of done that is that we focus primarily on the selling customer. We kind of have this philosophy. If we treat our sellers right, then we'll continue to get great inventory, great you know, Louis Vuitton's most recent collaborations or the classics that are still in great condition. Our goal is to acquire great and amazing, as current as possible, bags and accessories from our customers. Because once you have great inventory, there's still a problem of having to find a buyer. But that problem is an easier one to solve once you have the item. The hard part is the item. So you can imagine if you have a Rolex and we do watches and jewelry as well. If you had a Rolex, you know, that's in a desirable color, you know, I don't have a specific model in mind, but you have it, it's worth $10,000. You will always find a buyer for that. If you put that out there online, someone will buy it if you, if you have a trusted name for authenticity. But how do you ensure that you're going to get another Rolex tomorrow? That's the hard part. And so we've gotten to the point where we have a supplier network that we've cultivated over 15, 20 years of closets that are used to sending us items. And that pipeline to thousands of different closets throughout the country, that's the value that we feel like has been created. And once you have those things coming in, then you know the digital side, making it look presentable, taking the pictures, you know, doing the digital marketing is also work. And it also takes some thinking However, it's definitely secondary to the buying side. You can't sell it unless you've got it. Was that the same approach you took at the very beginning or is that something that you learned over time? The very beginning, it was still, you know, it, it, we wouldn't have said it that back then. We wouldn't have characterized it that way, but it was 100% the same in that our focus was always, how do you acquire a great piece of, you know, an item of that brand. That was always where all of our energy was focused. Once we got the item, let's say you got a, an Hermes Birkin bag, you know, this is like the iconic, you know, Hermes Birkin bag, which is, you know, $12,000 retail. And once you can get one of those in your door, then, you know, the early days were selling on eBay. So yeah, the selling was quote unquote easy. All we had to do is post it on eBay and sell. It was always focused on getting it. Once you got it, sell it on eBay. Once we went to our website, 
it was kind of similar. I mean, we would just put on the website, no marketing. It's almost like it markets itself. And that if you have an Hermes Birkin bag in the coveted, you know, orange color that everyone wants that year, then just imagine how relatively easy it is to sell it because you've got hundreds of thousands of people typing in Google Hermes Birkin orange. And if they type those words in, they'll find our site because we're one of the few people who actually have an orange Hermes Birkin online. So it's always been sourcing first and then find a buyer second. And that's played very well. If you go the other way around and you get a bunch of customers excited about your brand, then they come and they find that your inventory is small, then you just wasted all that marketing because they're not going to come back. So we figure put all of your effort into getting it first. Then if anyone comes, they'll find what they want and they'll come back for more. And that's kind of how we grew it from the from the beginning. Yeah, it's interesting. I just see so many connections between other two-sided marketplaces. You know, one thing is just starting it is proving the harder side of it first, but also just in terms of how you test it, how you build it out. So interesting just hearing about that, how you focus more on the seller side and less on the buyer side. Yeah, we always call it a supply constrained market. And then because the key constraint is the supply. You know, it's always been that way. And that we always track this number. We call it, of our, call it our daily sales to inventory ratio. So how many items we sell per day relative to how much items we have available. And that percentage, as we tracked it back when we only had like a thousand items on the site. So we have a thousand items on the site and 20 would sell in a day. So the ratio is like 2%. And we've been tracking that. And now we're at almost 40,000 items on the site and 2% still sell every day. So to us, that says that that ratio is staying constant no matter how many items we have, which indicates that there's still more growth to be had. We could put 100,000 items on the site. If we can still sell that 2%, then we'll know that the market's not tapped. There's still growth to be had. That's an important point you make is just finding those metrics that really are important in terms of assessing your success and, and also driving your strategy and decisions. Yeah, because it gets you have to kind of make your own your own metrics or decide what's important to you. Because at first, you know, we would look at conversion rate, like an you know, e-commerce conversion rate, and it was so low. Like we would look at our own conversion rate and be like, people in the industry would look at it and honestly think we'd made a mistake, and then we had the decimal in the wrong place. Like, how could your conversion rate be so low? And we're like, I don't know. Maybe you know, we were kind of scratching our heads. Then we kind of thought about it more and realized that you can't compare it to the conversion rate of a traditional e-commerce website who's selling stuff. So for example, take Cartier.com. So we sell Cartier, Cartier sells Cartier. Their conversion rate's got to be much higher because they have their collection out there. They have a finite number of of items that are on the site. You go to Cartier, you, you look for what you want. And then if you go the next day, it's the same experience. If you go next week, it's the same stuff. And they maybe only change it, you know, every season. For us, we have all different items every single day. And every day, another thousand items comes into our site that we didn't, that wasn't there yesterday. So people get into the use this habit of just staying on our site, looking around. It's always changing. It's like a it's like a game. It's a discovery. It's a thrill of the hunt where people are just looking around every day and they gotta go back tomorrow and look at another thousand items because it's always changing and it's unpredictable. So that leads to a low conversion rate because lots of the traffic is just kind of shopping and looking around. Whereas Cartier, you only go back there when you want to buy something. So your conversion rate is going to be higher because you don't 
just spend all day, every day hanging out on cardio, you already figured it out after the first day. So our conversion rate was very low, but we kind of learned to accept that and kind of use that to our advantage because we had a lot of stickiness on the, on the site. We can use that in other ways. Yeah, I think this underscores another point, which is basically metrics are relative to your industry, right? Or in this case, it's traditional retail versus e-commerce, just knowing that if you're comparing yourself to the Cartiers of the world, yeah, it would look off, but it's that's not really the right comparison to make. Yeah, that's true. And it's kind of the same thing with margins is our average ticket is our average uh, sale price per item is 1300 So $1,300 per item allows us to live on a margin that might be smaller than some of our competitors who have a little bit larger margins, but they sell everything in the home. So they might sell $25 Nike shorts or a kitchen chair. That brings their average sale price down to like $350 or so. And so they got to have higher margins to make money. Whereas if we keep our you know average sale price up at $1,300 or higher, then we can live on smaller margins and still pay the bills and be profitable. I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier. You talked about just really focusing on the, the great relationship with sellers and maybe you call it the seller experience. And I think it reminds me of what so many companies are focusing now on is around creating a, a world-class customer experience. How do you go about creating that great connection with your sellers and as an enduring point of competitive advantage? Well, I think one of the big tricks is that we buy the bag out directly. So we don't do a consignment process. So if you've got clothing, accessories, handbags, things like that, and you want to sell them, you probably expect that you, it's going to be a consignment kind of a deal because that's what's been around forever, consignment stores. And that works where you put the item on the site, on their site, and you get paid, let's say, 30% of the sale price after it sells. And not only after it sells, but after it sells and exceeds the return window, and then they cut you a check and write it to you and send it to you. So you might put your bag up there that's worth $1,000 and get a $700 check two months later. And you wouldn't even know it's going to be $700 till the two months is over because you don't know if they're going to discount it, if it's actually going to sell. So what we did early on was make the, the customer a buyout offer. So we said, on consignment, you'll probably get $700. We'd make them that prediction. But, I said, but if you want to just get rid of it right now, we'll buy it for six fifty. So we would pay a little bit less to take on the risk. So we started doing this buyout and we found that even when we gave customers the option, you could get more on consignment or take it now and take a little less. They would choose to take a little bit less for the surety and the quickness of the cash. So we quickly learned that that was what people wanted. And we did that. And you know, honestly, it's something that a lot of companies wouldn't do and won't do now because it's so cash intensive to put all that money up front and take on the inventory risk and the cash risk to put, in our case, tens of millions of dollars into the inventory, hoping that it will sell later is much riskier proposition than a consignment store, which doesn't lose anything if your item doesn't sell. So we put our kind of put the customer first in that case, the seller first, saying that's what they want. Let's give them what they want, even if it's a little bit more painful for us. And um, that's paid off in that we get those customers coming back to us time after time because they like the experience. So there's that. And also, we just put a lot of energy into kind of being the experts in the, in the field and knowing what we're talking about. So if you came to us with a special bag that had a, a different color lining 
we would know that like Louis Vuitton with the red stripe lining, the Louis Vuitton Neverfull Damier with the red stripe lining is worth more than the Louis Vuitton Neverfull with the tan lining. So we would know those nuances because we spent years and years documenting all the different nuances in the bags and the different value that they have. And so we would say, oh, I'll, I'll honor that bag with the red lining. I'll give you an extra hundred bucks for that because I know that that's different. Whereas if we hadn't spent the time to be experts in it, we would just kind of offer them all the same price because they pretty much look the same. But customers who bought that bag, they know. They know it's special. And if we don't know it's special, then they won't come back to us. So we kind of invested in expertise from the beginning and doing the buyout up front. I think that's those are the key factors to our, our growth in the supplier side. That reminds me of one of our past guests who talked about Vans Shoes as a company and how a lot of the employees that they hire are actual, you know, former professional skaters and snowboarders and surfers and so forth. And just really because they understand the sport, they understand the brand, and then it allows them to get in a better place in terms of the mind of the customer. Yeah, that's totally right. Another thing we can, we can do because we have the buyout model is we always say that we're not just buying the bag, we're buying the customer. And so if you've got someone and you're negotiating to buy a bag, and if it's like a maybe a, a husband whose ex-wife left him a bunch of bags and he's just selling them one time, we give him the standard price. But if you can see that this is a lady who, by all appearances, has an amazing closet, an amazing taste, a really strong relationship with a Chanel, you know, sales representative. Like this person is a person who owns a closet that should be in our network. So we might, because we do the buyout model, not a consignment, we could make an on-the-fly decision to say, let's give this lady an extra hundred bucks for each bag. We want to make sure she's happy and that she tells her friends how how great it is and how much we gave her because we're buying that closet not just the bag that we're buying in that day. And I think if you're a consignment model, you can't really make those on the spot changes. You're just like everything is a 30%. So you're valuing an old pair of shoes as well as you are you know, like a bag that just came out last week and is really popular. You're saying 30% for everything. And that's just not the way it is. Like some things have more value than others. And so with a buyout model and expertise, you can actually and we've we've bought bags that are We've decided we're only going to make a 10% margin, which is very low for us. And it's not a good way, not sustainable, but we'll make exceptions to say, we just want that customer and that bag, even if we lose money on it. Because what does that say about us if we were able to get you know, that hot piece of uh, you know, jewelry that just dropped last week or whatever? Interesting. Another great key point of differentiation. Yeah. Yeah. It's the ability to treat each customer however they need to be treated to be you know, to stay in our network. Yeah, which is such a great point, you know, treating, individualizing the way you, you look at your customers or even just your employees as well. I mean, I think about the best leaders who adapt their style to their team members versus just taking a one size fits all. No, that's a good point. It's true. So something that really comes screaming through both in this conversation, but also just in looking around your website is that one of my favorite words, maybe a cliche word is authenticity. And then you guys talk about authentication of the products, making sure it's the real product. How do you reinforce that as part of your brand? Like how important is that word authenticity in terms of your brand and your culture? Yeah, it's like we have a set of values posted up on our, in our break room, which no one goes to anymore because of COVID, but <laughs> that'll come back to some degree. And our first value is we believe in authenticity. And it's kind of a double meaning because... Definitely, the handbags have to be authentic. The watches, jewelry—that's a separate job, by the way. So we 
we don't lump the job of authenticating the merchandise that we get with any other job. So we have a check-in crew, we have a photography crew, we have a buying crew, and then the authenticity crew is a separate one. And they just spend their time just handling the bags or the, or the, or the jewelry and looking for those hallmarks of authenticity, whether it be got to be the right hardware, the right feel, the right coldness or warmth of the hardware in a certain bag or the right stitching color and, and thickness. The brand is embossed in the leather. They look at all those details, smell it, all that kind of stuff. And so they learn those, the authenticity. So that's definitely not only a differentiator that we're very good at that, but kind of a baseline necessity that we have to do that right or else we're really going to be hurting in the long run. So authenticity is for real in a very literal sense. But in the other definition of authenticity, we also just kind of believe that we don't want to get too caught up in this luxury stuff. Like we're selling very fine items, but we don't want to take ourselves too seriously and get snooty. We kind of found that a lot of times, even sales associates who work in those really high-end stores kind of take on the persona of the bag and they're like, oh, we're better than everybody else. And kind of, you know, I don't know. We've always kind of been worried about, we want to be authentic. We want to be talking to our customers about what's important to them and not just, you know, being fake and, and, and surface kind of focused. So we felt like, you know, we hire people. We, we, one of our ways that we stay authentic is that we hire people for their skills and their attitudes and their humility and their work ethic, not for where they worked for before. Some of our best handbag authenticators of Hermes, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Gucci, Dior, never touched a handbag. They weren't even interested in these bags before they were hired. They didn't come from Dior or Louis Vuitton. They came from whatever, you know, many times just totally different industries. And we taught them what, you know, how to, how to do it. And I think that's helped also our, our, some of our best handbag buyers were not coming. They didn't come from fashion. They came from research fields or they came from somewhere where they were good at going online to find comparable prices and they could do it with any product but we kind of train them up in our way anyway so authenticity is important to us we try to basically quote unquote keep it real with ourselves and uh keep it real with the bags now i love it when there's consistency between those brand values and both in terms of how you represent yourself to the marketplace and how you treat your customers, but also internal in terms of how you work with employees and a great example you gave in terms of how you hire employees as well. Yeah, it's definitely true. We, we have a great crew. I mean, our, our, um, the head of our um, handbag buying team, which is like 40 people large, was an animal trainer by trade. She started working with us early on doing customer service and things like that. And we just kind of saw some talent in there and she grew with the company and is now heading up our buying team and is really one of the world's handbag experts now. It's easy to become an expert when you see literally thousands of bags every single day and you price each one of them. So she really learned a lot in the last seven years. What a fascinating career path. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who knew? So moving forward, what's the future hold for Fashion File? What are you guys looking at in terms of new industries, new growth opportunities? Growth is in the future. Interestingly, this year we're seeing our, our biggest growth year ever. And it's really amazing. And people are selling us bags more than ever. We're still able to sell them. 
We're breaking records every single month for the last six months. Every month is, is bigger than the, than the one prior. So growth is there. And it's, we're not going down market at all to increase market share or revenue. We're staying with the ultra luxury. We are making efforts to broaden our jewelry and watch categories because we feel like that's just, it's a horizontal move, not a vertical move. We, there's not much farther up we can go in handbags. We're kind of at the top. But we, we don't want to go down on handbags as far as like price point and brand value. But we want to go across into jewelry and watches more. We feel like we're very underrepresented in those categories. We have like 10% of our sales are, are jewelry and watches. We feel like that could be 30%. So there's a lot of growth to happen there. There's also home. There's a little bit more we could do in the, in the home sectors. Really luxury kind of throw pillows and, and things like that. For the home is an opportunity for us to possibly expand horizontally as long as they're brands that have the same value as the brands we carry for bags and jewelry. But other than that, it's geographic expansion. We're signing a lease right now for a facility in New York in New York, and that will be um, right in Manhattan. And we'll have a second distribution facility there where people can come in and shop as well. And that will make us by coastal in the United States, and we're already looking at. Europe. So we're looking at Paris being the place where we start a European version of Fashion File. And if that goes as planned, then we've got the Middle East and Asia to go after that as well. So our expansion is is more getting the world onto our platform rather than changing anything about who we are and accepting bags we haven't taken. So we'll stick with what we've got, expand it a little bit, then just get out in front of the whole world. We're still have a very low awareness compared to where we could be. Well, exciting times for Fashion File. Yes. Yeah. A lot of work. A lot of, a lot of exciting things happen all the time. Well, where can people go to find out more about your company and perhaps even pick up a handbag or two? Fashionfile.com. Everything we sell is, even though we mentioned a Neiman Marcus partnership, that Neiman Marcus partnership is just for us to buy bags. So you can only go to a Neiman and deal with Fashion File on the selling side. So we can write you a check on the spot at a Neiman location. Not all of them, but we'll be in all of them, I think, at some point. But right now we're in six. But fashionfile.com, and it's spelled fashion, P-H-I-L-E, not fashion, F-I-L-E. So the lover of fashion, fashionfile.com. Fantastic. Well, hey, Ben, I really appreciate your time coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.